Welcome to Book Me, sponsored by Nimbus Publishing and Arts Nova Scotia. Today, Costas Halabrezos in conversation with author Allison Delory. How many phrases can you think of that include the word home? When are you coming home? Time to go home. The comforts of home. As common as they are, they all contain an emotional undercurrent, and with good reason. Having a place to call home, somewhere, is essential to us as humans. In her debut novel, Making It Home, Alison Delory introduces us to a cast of characters whose relationships to home range from the deeply rooted to the dangerously precarious. Alison Delory, welcome to Book Me. Thank you for having me. What got you thinking about home as a theme for a novel? I didn't actually set out to write a book about home. I began this book as a writing exercise for a course I was taking and was inspired by um, a beaching of whales in Cape Breton. That was an event that happened around the time uh, when I started this book. Um, So I wrote that scene it spilled into uh, chapter two, chapter three, chapter four, and I found myself on um, on the path. And uh, the idea of theming it around home and the beginning uh, using the whales as a metaphor for being displaced from home um, sort of revealed itself to me. Now, each character has a, a notion of home. Let's start with Tinker Gordon. What, what does home mean to Tinker? It is Cape Breton for Tinker. Tinker was born in Cape Breton. He's lived there his whole life. And in fact, he's rarely left the island. So he is very rooted in the place uh, where he was born. So home for him is, is very practical. He is a senior gentleman, a, a grandfather. He has very clear ideas of right and wrong. He has very a very stubborn streak. Uh, you could call him a curmudgeon. And home for him is not... Um, it is about comfort because he feels most comfortable in his community, but it's mostly the physical place of home. It's his... Um, community, which I've called Falkirk Cove, and the people that live there. And he wants it to be as it always was. He's very unhappy about the changes that are happening in his community. So uh, I think as you've clearly suggested, he's a fairly judgmental guy, Tinker. How does his idea of home clash with that of his adult grandson, Charlie? So Charlie is a part of a generation that mainly has had to leave Cape Breton for work. So he... And not the first. No, certainly not the first. Many of his friends had moved to Alberta uh, to work in the oil fields, as so many Cape Bretoners have. In fact, I've heard it called Canada's longest commute. So Charlie's very open to the idea of movement uh, out of necessity for work. He's not as attached to staying in Cape Breton for his whole life. Life, and this causes great a great rift between the two uh, characters, the Tinker, the grandfather, and, and Charlie, the grandson. Tinker can't really uh, accept um, Charlie's eagerness to leave Cape Breton. He can't understand it, and he, he is hurt by it. He takes it personally. Uh, you could have written a, a perfectly good novel uh, based on the familiar territory for Atlantic Canadians, uh, you know, that push-pull uh, of staying home or moving to find a job, mm-hmm. but... 
You take a very dramatic step in this novel. You introduce a family of Syrians in Aleppo under siege in the Civil War. Why did you decide to do that? I was writing this book in 2015, and at that time, the mass Syrian exodus was beginning. So thousands of Syrians were fleeing their homeland, and many of them were starting to come to Canada. So I was greatly impacted by stories on the news of refugees from Syria choosing to come to Canada. And there were many stories that I was hearing about this sea of Syrian um, refugees, but I was feeling a bit unfamiliar with their individual stories. So getting to know one family, showing the plight of the Syrians through the experience of one family was my goal. And of course, no family can typify the entire sea of people that comes from a country. Uh, they're, they're merely a representative of, of that group. But I, I found myself quite taken with what it must have been like to make that final decision to leave their homeland and come to a whole new place where they didn't know the language, where they didn't have any roots, they didn't have any family, they didn't share the, the predominant religion of the people there. So that became a near obsession for me when I was writing this book, thinking through their perspective and trying to see through their eyes. And it became a, a great research project and a, a really a wonderful challenge to try and to try and imagine their lives and what they were thinking and feeling. Well, yeah, it is one thing to write about a, a family in Atlantic Canada, but uh, quite another when Amira and her husband Sammy are in conflict about staying in or leaving Aleppo. What did you have to do to approach their reality at that point when, where they're making that decision and there is a conflict between them? Right. There certainly is. The Sammy is a, a physician in Aleppo. He feels that he has an obligation to stay. He has a duty to stay and treat the people who are injured by the war and otherwise sick. Uh, Amira, his wife, is feeling under threat. She's worried about their children. She wants to leave the country. So there's conflict in that marriage. Um, I really thought a lot about these people and the conflict inside of a marriage, whether it's in Aleppo or whether it's in Halifax or anywhere else in the world, I think is is very universal. So I, I think their circumstances impacted how that conflict played out, but I don't think at the root of it, the love that they had for each other, the arguments they were having, uh, what they sort of went through to make that very difficult decision to go, I think that is is something that's shared no matter where you live within personal relationships. But but their love does come through, but you know, because of circumstances, they get into this, you know, black and white conflict over what to do. Well, yes, and I wanted to depict them as a very real loving couple. Their marriage is is very strong, but it's it's tested, very seriously tested in this book, and. They have to stare down a lot of um, questions and, and really confront them uh, as a couple. And there was certainly some nerves on my part writing about a culture that wasn't, wasn't my own and trying to understand 
particularly in that culture where there is such a strong bond with one's parents and there is such what seemed to be to be clearer roles defined around uh, men's and women's roles in marriages, things like that. So I did have to spend some time being respectful of those uh, those things and trying to accommodate them in the story and make these people seem real and true to the people of that region. And I understand you, you did get some help on, on sorting out things like even what to name a child. I certainly did. I reached out to ISANS, the Immigration Services Association of Nova Scotia, first. They connected me to a minister, Russell Adams, here in Halifax, who's done um, work in in the Middle East and lived in refugee camps. He connected me with a friend of his who now lives in Toronto, who was a Syrian refugee. And then later I had what's called a sensitivity edit uh, by Danny Ramadan, who's a, a Syrian-born man now living in, in Vancouver. So I, I had multiple levels of help, honestly, in, in um, some of the very practical details and also some of the cultural things that... that needed to be brought to my attention. So characters' names, uh, were they consistent? I had a family that was Sunni, and it was suggested to me a name of one of the characters, and there was was Shiite, and that wouldn't have uh, made sense in the world. I had them fleeing Aleppo uh, or at one point on a on a highway, and I was told by, by my editor, no, highways are all closed. They would have all been closed at that point, so they would have been on, on backcountry farming roads. I had a um, female interacting directly with a physician and was told no in that culture she would have had a male in the room with her women don't um, have examinations by male doctors without a, a third person presence so some really important details practical details I had to be aware of and then again just the broader kind of cultural sensitivity points that were really important to me to get right now, getting back to the family uh, on the uh, Canadian side of, of the ocean uh, with Charlie uh, the adult grandson of Tinker, and his girlfriend, Nell, you really capture something that, that people in their 20s face. It's a generational thing when they finish their formal schooling. Uh, what do I do now, and where do I do it? Yes. How does that, uh, I guess, challenge young people's notion of home? It's a good question. I I found for myself that period in your 20s when you graduate from um, school, university, college, whatever that may be, um, you have such idealistic uh, hopes and expectations about job and, and, and what you're going to be able to to contribute. And, and sometimes that doesn't happen immediately. Um, I also taught at the post-secondary level, so I work with a lot of 20-year-olds and, and feel a sympathy towards that sort of struggle of coming into your career with big dreams and then finding it just such a struggle to find that job and, and find work that's meaningful to you. Um, so, you know, the, the experience of the people I know, because I did grow up in Nova Scotia, I did move to Toronto for uh, school and work reasons, and I ended up staying there for 18 years. And that, I think, is very common um, for people not only of my generation, but the one before me and the one that, that's coming you know, through the ranks now. Um, we have a long history here in the Maritimes of, of having a flexible idea of home, that it's, it's where, you, where you need to go to have an income. Uh, and for many of us, then the goal is to come back. Now, we've mentioned the, the two families, the family in Cape Breton, the family from Aleppo. There's another character in there, it almost acts as a Greek chorus, a fellow named Roger. Yes. Why did you include Roger? Tell us about him. I adored Roger. I loved writing the scenes with Roger. 
Uh, Roger is what textbooks may call a calendrical savant. So he has the gift of knowing the day of the week. Uh, if you name any date in history, March 6th, 1920, he could tell you that was a Tuesday. He, and this is a documented phenomenon. A, a very small percentage of the population appears to be able to do this. And, and science hasn't determined exactly why they have this gift or, or have been able to reason, uh, puzzle it out and explain it. Uh, he has this gift. He also has a, a fondness for counting. Um, so he was an important character to me, although he doesn't appear in many chapters, but when he does appear, he always brings a perspective and an insight into a scene that the characters with what I would call typical vision um, couldn't see. So he was inspired in part by um, my uncle, Stanley. My mother is from Cape Breton. We spent a lot of time in Cape Breton when I was growing up. So although I've never lived there, I feel an affinity with the place. And my Uncle Stanley lived there for most of his life. He was born with intellectual disabilities. And he was that person in their community, which was Sydney, who was atypical. But he was embraced by the community. He was respected. He was um, employed. He was well-loved. And... I really saw throughout his life that he brought out the best in the people um, that he was with. So he was also a way, you know, Roger in my book, much like Stanley in my real life, was a way of showing the humanity in people, their kindness, their goodness. Uh, this this novel really captures a moment in, in Canadian history, everything from the, the chase, the ace fed, there are references to that, uh, to the bust in Alberta's economy, uh, to sponsoring Syrian refugees. Uh, what were the challenges and rewards for you as an author to be really writing in real time? Because you said you were writing this in 2015. For me, it was just made easier, uh, all of the events that were happening in the world at the time, and to draw from them. They were propelling the story forward for me. So my background is as a journalist and a business communicator. I've always paid close attention to the news. And I began this book writing from the Cape Breton perspective. And then the, what was happening in Syria was so omnipresent, I wanted to write about it. And things that I was seeing on the news, the, for example, the um, tragic uh, washing up of Alan Curdy's body on the beach. Um, I, you know, I, I was so affected by that and, and devastated by that that I had an opportunity to work through some of that grief through the telling of this story. So for me, it was made easier to write about something that was happening in real times. So I could rip from the headlines, and uh, I enjoyed that part of it immensely. Now, I know you're very uh, busy in your day job, but... Wouldn't it be interesting to revisit the families in this novel 10 years from now? It would be interesting, but I also hope that 10 years from now there are Syrian Canadians writing their own stories. I would love to read a book written by somebody who made this journey from their perspective, from their point of view. That would be my hope for the sequel to this book. Now, making it home seems to be a double entendre to a certain extent. Can you talk about that? Yes. And I was struggling for a title and have to give credit to uh, Mary Lou Peterson and my writing group for suggesting it. And she pointed out that it allows the reader to think about home as 
two things. You're making your way home. So you're making your way to the place that you will call home. Or um, the obverse is that you are making wherever it is you happen to be home. So if you find yourself living in a refugee camp for a year or two years, you do your best to make that your home during that period of time. It may not be where you want to be ultimately or in the long term, but for where you are now, you do your best to make it as homey as it can be. The other thing that crossed my mind as I was reading it was uh, Homer could have called the Odyssey making it home because it's a 10-year <laughs> journey. But yes. you have all these people, all these characters are on personal odysseys, it seems. I suppose I, I do. I hadn't thought of it in that context. But um, listen, I'll take the comparison to Homer, sure. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for putting it out. Allison, thank you very much for coming in. It's been my absolute pleasure. Thank you. Alison Delory is the author of Making It Home. She's also written two chapter books for readers age 6 to 10, Lunar Lifter and Scotia Sinker. To hear past episodes of our podcast, go to bookmepodcast.ca. That's bookmepodcast.ca. Or just pop bookme with an exclamation mark in your search engine. BookMe is sponsored by Nimbus Publishing and Arts Nova Scotia. Our producer is Robin Grant, and Lynn Fox has made us a comfortable home in cyberspace. I'm Costas Halavrezos. Now, let's go read. Read.